0: Welcome to our NBC Life podcast from Share Cancer Support, dedicated to exploring life with metastatic breast cancer from the perspective of us, the people living with this disease, and the experts who partner with us to help make our lives better. I'm Lisa Laudico, and I'm so glad you're here since no one should face NBC alone. This episode has been something that my colleague Natalia Green has talked about with me since our first meeting and I'm so glad that we can bring it to you today. There are so many issues that individuals living with NBC face. It's a veritable whack-a-mole operation covering our physical, mental, financial, and spiritual health every single day. As we head into this time of gratitude and thanksgiving, but let's be real, it should be all the time. Let's not forget to thank ourselves, our minds, and our bodies for carrying us through even with disease and disfigurement. Let's all grab some real love for our whole selves. Here's Natalia.
1: Hi, my name Natalia Green, and I'm a senior producer and co-host of RMBC Live podcast. On today's episode, we'll be looking into the perception of body image and diet culture in the breast cancer community. I approach this episode with my own experience. When I think about healthcare and cancer, the first image I think of is seeing a bald cancer survivor, of course all in pink, and just finishing a marathon. You know that image. And there's no hate for those living their best fit life during cancer. But that image doesn't reflect all of us in the breast cancer and NBC community. I've struggled with body acceptance almost my entire life. I think most women can relate that body acceptance doesn't come easy or even naturally in our society. It seems throughout my life that I've been on some kind of a diet and had some unattainable expectation on what my body should look like. It wasn't until my late 20s, maybe even early 30s, that I started feeling comfortable on who I was and finally was able to accept my curvier exterior and find more love for myself. Then Cancer As many of us know, cancer and cancer treatment have a way of causing new anxieties and has the tendency of resurfacing past anxieties and issues. Those of us who've had our breasts removed are all too familiar with the challenge to accept what seems our new disfigured bodies. Those of us on certain medications may experience body changes due to onset medical menopause. This brings on a constant battle of mood changes, lots and lots and lots of hot flashes, libido changes and weight gain. Recovering from treatments, surgeries, and side effects can leave a lot of us less active and more secluded than before entering the cancer world. Then those pesky diets. Almost immediately after my diagnosis, and even more so with my MBC diagnosis, people from nowhere started telling me what to eat, what not to eat, when to exercise, the best type of exercise, and recommendations of all the exotic foods and medicine that will cure my cancer. I may have been ignorant in thinking this, but I thought I wouldn't notice or care about those things anymore. I thought I would just enjoy life to the fullest and not worry about all the small stuff. Well... Much of my time dealing with cancer is dealing with the guilt, shame, and insecurities that come with life, but it seems super magnified. After my MBC diagnosis, I've taken steps to love and better accept myself. That means reclaiming the word fat and being proud of it. This means regaining a healthy relationship with my body and with food, and I appreciate my body for all it's gotten me through, and seeing my scars less as a disfigurement, but as a reminder of life. At least that's what I'm aiming for. Today's episode, we'll be speaking with two extraordinary women, two women who I actually met and learned about on social media, Laura Scannell and Mariah Crenshaw. Both of these people have very different stories, but very inspiring stories about body acceptance. We also speak to Dr. Crystal Zuniga, a registered and licensed dietitian and researcher that works with cancer patients. She uses nutrition to optimize the health and quality of life of people living with cancer. And spoiler alert it's not all about losing weight. So first, I went to my podcast team to ask them about their experience with body image and diet culture in the breast cancer community. I'm joined by Lisa Ladico, Dar Finkelstein, and Dr. Ellen Landsberger. Here they are.
2: My issue is less with the MBC community than it was early on when I had early stage disease. And at that time, I was extremely obese and there's an association with obesity and breast cancer. So the horror of feeling like I caused this. And there was nobody on who could help dissuade that. And then I tried to like bargain. If I lose weight, will it go away? Recognizing that there are plenty of thin people who have breast cancer too. It just added to my distress about my obesity. And my original tumor was about 25 years ago. So there was less acceptance of obesity and different body images and weights than I think there is now. So it was very challenging.
0: I'm so sorry that you had to go through that early stage diagnosis with the additional burden of stigma. For myself, I've always been a thin person and I haven't always been physically fit. And when I was first diagnosed de novo, it was a running checklist with people. But Lisa, you're like so healthy. Uh, We don't understand what's going on. How could this have happened? You did everything right. And the question, then becomes, what did you possibly not do to get this diagnosis? When of course I had screenings for a very long time. So they're like puzzled. And I think when you're first diagnosed, there's a lot of that anyway, but to have the body issues on top of it, but then in addition, what are you eating? What are you drinking? What are you doing to continue being that model patient when it's so much is just a stick a finger in your eye kind of situation because it is no one's fault to get MBC. It's no one's fault to get breast cancer in general.
3: You know, I had similar, Ellen, because mine was 16 years ago and I was overweight at the time and I had that whole, okay, yeah, that's one of the things on the checklist is obesity for breast cancer. So I thought maybe I brought it on by that and then started on... Famara, and the weight started, I started gaining more weight instead of losing weight. And I thought, well, I'm just not doing this. And then gave up and didn't think about it. Then my weight always fluctuates quite a bit. 13 years later, I got the MBC diagnosis. I was like, shoot, maybe I should have really watched my weight during that time. And this wouldn't have happened. That was one of the first things I remember thinking when I got diagnosed. And I I look back on it now and I thought that's crazy that I was beating myself up about that. It's always something, but then
2: it's when I lost a ton of weight and then, but I don't exercise and I don't do this enough and I don't do that enough. It's the reality is that none of those things are causative and the causative nature is genetic, environmental, and these other aspects are just associations and that distinction isn't as clearly made.
0: I think that the the nature of treatments for MBC and you are you are you're on treatment for the rest of your life and the kind of damage that it does, various treatments, even if you are able to tolerate the side effects are a rap sheet a mile long, and sometimes the side effects will be weight gain, sure, but they'll also be things like lower energy, fatigue, and inability to exercise the way you perhaps did before. Now there are there is research and we've talked about it on the pod. It's done at the hospital. One particular study is being done at the hospital where I'm treated and exercise does assist increasing your, you know, cardiovascular activity while you're in taking these types of drugs will help with your energy. And in fact, they're looking at how it actually increases the efficacy of the drugs, right? But that's very different than saying you need to walk, three miles a day and lose 10 pounds because otherwise you're not going to be a good MBC patient. It's a very different message. One is very proactive in terms of let's try to look at this and how it can improve how you respond to treatment. How can it improve your fatigue side effects say, but that nuance is often lost. And the patients who are dealing with an existential end of life crisis daily, in addition to the guilt on, did I do this myself? And hopefully all of our listeners are disabused of that. Hopefully every single NBC person who listens to this podcast knows it is not your fault.
1: We next talk about the body image that we have of ourselves. Not only does treatment in itself bring its own challenges with weight gain and weight loss, but some treatments, some surgeries, and some procedures leave our bodies looking different than before. Here's Ellen.
2: I had I had a lumpectomy and radiation, and nobody mentioned that the there would be a reduction in the size of my breast. So now, already having difficulty with being a very large woman, now I had my breasts were different sizes. And I was totally unprepared for that. And the patients who had mastectomies, there were different things and different prosthetics for them. But for me, I didn't even know that I could get that. And so it was going around and trying to hide. I was always trying to hide things and and trying to not have a shape. And ultimately I have lost a tremendous amount of weight. Then I was really distorted and I have had two breast reductions of the normal breast just to be able to get a decent broth because things are, they're just different. Yeah. Dealing with the distorted image was, was very hard.
3: Yeah, mine was, mine was similar too, Ellen. Again, I had lumpectomy in the radiation. And in the beginning, it wasn't a, a big difference for me. As I've aged, it is now I've got one that's very perky and one that points down to my knees. <laughs> and that is, is Disconcerting. And yes, finding a bra that fits me properly is almost impossible to do. And that has, and that really has only been in the last few years that's become a big issue for me. So that was about the same time as I was getting diagnosed with MBC that I started having that first real body issue as far as my treatment.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I had radiation of my primary tumor and that was just a year ago. And what's so interesting about that is as the year has progressed, it's become more and more disfigured and that's normal. This is what radiation does to your skin. But I have almost the same situation as you, Dar. It's so funny because it's one is love and gravity and the other one, I define not is not as defying gravity like that wicked musical we can hear that music in my head and so the one divine gravity is like this who are you what is that it doesn't really feel like me but that's it feels minor enough in that i am now i think i i took a page from natalia's book and what the hell i'm not wearing bras anymore
1: do you think our breast cancer community either through social at our doctor's offices do you think that they represent this type of issue that women are having? Or are there poster people of the breast cancer community not represented enough of what bodies are looking like in reality with people who have breast cancer or MBC?
0: I'd like to think that we're in a better place, but I think, I think there's so much confusion and there's still the stigmas are so real. For the general population, everything gets amplified when you're in a stage four cancer diagnosis. The stakes are higher. The trauma is bigger. The guilt is gargantuan, even when intellectually we all know, and can I repeat it again? It's not your fault that you got NBC. Just want to say it one more time. But I think we still have a long way to go. Conversations with this are so important, I think too, this is a great space, if you will, where there's real intersectionality commonality with our early stage friends, because I just cannot tell you how much I've learned from the people who've had early stage disease. And for those that thankfully haven't recurred, you all have gone through like a hell that I can't even imagine. And I have to, I feel it's really important to say that. And the body dysmorphia for early stage breast cancer patients, that's a real, that's real issue and a real struggle people living with NBC and people living with early stage disease we all are facing that similar thing it's super tough and so many issues leave it to the terminal breast cancer patients to friggin try to stir things up and help have this conversation in so many areas of advocacy that's what happens it's this has to change for the general population so let's start here
2: i think you know what you're saying about the focus When I had early stage, I didn't want a recurrence. And I was much more caught up in how I looked. I think when I was diagnosed or since I've been diagnosed with metastatic disease, how I look is much less important than the fact that I go out and that I be present and I'm able to do things. I'm much more focused on how I live, regardless of how I look. I will always care about my weight because it's been, you know, a major issue in my life. And I'll always regret when I'm up a little and I'll be happier, a little little happier when I'm down a little But I'm really trying. Like I was with somebody earlier this week who had lost a tremendous amount of weight herself. And I was very careful not to say anything to her because she's beautiful. She's beautiful thin and she's beautiful heavy. And I really just didn't, I didn't want to focus on that because that's what people always say to me when you're thin. Oh, you look so great. What's wrong with me when now,
0: (laughs) you know? I'm so glad of that, Ellen. It makes me happy that we always look for a little silver lining. So if body dysmorphia (laughs) dissipates a little bit after an MBC diagnosis, because we just don't give a shit anymore or whatever, I think that's got to be a good thing. I'm so glad that you're being kinder and gentler to yourself. I think if anything, I, I think it's important for us just to be kinder and gentler to ourselves, but, and to just cry. I bullshit to the bullshit?
3: In the beginning, when I first was diagnosed, I had. I got all this information from everybody and I thought, okay, I've got to do whatever is the best, giving me the best chance, best fighting chance here. So I went full on plant-based, but kept Mm -hmm. that protein up and just really followed that extremely strict. Mm -hmm. And but what it did for me was it gave me a sense of control over something in my life. And that's why I was doing it. When I look back now, that gave me control. I've modified it greatly in the last two and a half years, but I still have some controls on that. And my main thought process is I want to do things that help me keep my energy level up. And that is really what I focus on.
0: I also think it's important to note that it just takes your first progression after being diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer and being plant-based, maybe even doing microbiota, a biotic diet, or really focusing on your diet and perhaps even your exercise combined. And then you progress and then you think to yourself, huh? So I progressed anyway, and I did all this stuff and I tried to do it to control what I could control because this cancer is out of my control. So Dar, just the same way. I'm a big, I know it's a shocker, a big control freak with myself. And then, and then what do you say to yourself? I did all of that. And then I still progressed. I just am at this point, I eat healthy because it helps me feel better. I'm going to have things that give me joy and to hell with it. I am. All of this is absolutely tied into our mental health. And so let us just keep reminding ourselves that let's put our mental health tied in with our physical health. Do not separate them. Really look at your whole body system, your mind, your heart, your body. And when you do that, hopefully, and I say this to myself, hopefully I won't feel the need to control. I won't feel panic and anxiety when things are out of my control. I'm going to just breathe through it and through therapy and medications should I need. Let's just be kinder and gentler to ourselves. We're going through so much and let the world see how we do it because that's how the world should also be living their lives.
3: I have a question. What happens though, whenever like early stage, all the medical people around me were telling me you need to really watch your weight. That's important. That's important. That's important. While I was going through that. Once I was MBC, nobody seemed to give a crap about any of that. I gain weight every month. It's up every month. And I say something and they say, yeah, we don't worry about
1: that's what I was gonna ask next about um, yeah. what are your providers saying about it? What are they recommending? Are they assigning you to a therapist or nutritionist or dietitian? What are they saying to you?
3: They did give me, they did send me to a nutritionist and they they gave me some very good advice and I follow a lot of that, but they still just don't seem to really be concerned. And it may be going back to, I'll have a time that I'm on a treatment where I'm going to end up losing some significant weight, possibly. I I just am always a little bit surprised that they aren't concerned. (laughs) But then if they aren't concerned, then I don't worry about it. And then, then that's a whole snowball effect thing there. So I do still maintain but when they tell you they don't care, obviously they're, they're shutting down that conversation.
0: I do think it's also tied into supportive care and, or palliative care. And the fact that when you're working with a, a person, an individual who has metastatic breast cancer, th- you should be looking at the whole person. Whenever you're dealing with someone with metastatic breast cancer, it's okay. We got to deal with the five alarm fire and this other stuff, which is supportive care, palliative care, things making the whole body, the whole mind, the whole person help them feel good. That. It's not everybody's front of mind, every provider's first thing that they think of. And that's our job, unfortunately, to remind them that it should indeed be part of our care.
2: There was a period of time where I was getting tons of emails looking for lifestyle modification studies for people with stage zero to stage three and stage four, where people were excluded. And I contacted the, the staff involved with the foundation and talked to them. I said, Why are you excluding us? We have, we have lifestyle modification issues as well. We want to be a part of this. And I got to the researcher involved who gave me some reason that made some sense, but I still thought that she could have included us in the studies. I think there's a lot of exclusion of these things. I think that Lisa hit the nail on the head. They're looking at keeping us alive and don't worry about the rest of the stuff. My own intern has said, you've got, when I ask her about osteoporosis or diabetes, oh, you've got enough to worry about. <laughs> you have enough to worry about. So it's on me to deal
1: with it. I felt like with this disease, I would be able to step aside and care less about societal norms. But a part of it, it's, it's even more magnified because I felt more scrutinized or I felt more self-conscious about it. Now, due to the power of therapy, I think I'm loving myself better, but it's a difficult place to get to that. Even though I'm loving myself better it doesn't mean I'm loving myself all the time. How do you feel where you're at right now in this point in your life of, I guess, body image and diet culture?
2: I think some this comes more from age than anything else at some point I just have to accept This is who I am. And I feel better than I felt actually when I was 20 years younger. And I was a lot heavier. I'm not trying to not always trying to change. I'm just much more accepting and 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 loving and accepting of other people. I was very harsh
3: on myself and judgmental
2: of other people. And so giving that up is just giving up a huge burden. So that feels good.
3: Yeah, I think mine is a combination of the age. And then also after post diagnosis, it was like, you know what, this bucket that I'm carrying is so stinking full. I'm just going to get rid of some of these things. And that's <laughs> of the stuff that I got rid of was really caring about what other people were going to think.
0: Oh, I love that. I'm so glad. I think that the loving of yourself extends to how you perceive the world it took some time, but it's, it's a great feeling to have that sense of peace with yourself. I think we, many of us, a lot of us, at least I can speak for myself. It's I just don't give a shit about a lot of stuff. And I think that's normal and I'm glad for it. I'm glad for it. I'm grateful for it. Um,
1: I think it's helpful, too, when the world around us becomes more accepting to these things as well. We see on our social and people that we meet that they're embracing that they're bodies the way they are their diagnosis without judgment for themselves so I think that helps too mm-hmm. when I see people who look more like me or see people embracing their bodies and I think they look amazing whether they're thinner than me or heavier than I am I want that confidence or I want that attitude where you look like you like yourself and I think that looks the best on everyone that look in
3: their eyes you
1: know yeah. they're- <laughs>
0: <and they're- laughs> who wore it best the person with the best self image that's for damn sure honestly <laughs> I'm
2: looking at all of us we're all sitting here smiling and that joy is showing through Natalia you're just seem to be glowing um now and, and Dara you're smiling and laughing and Lisa we can see your dancing eyes through this all oh, behind your mask <laughs> you can't cover up your eyes that's great so that part that's really that's who we are
1: Our first guest is Laura Scannell. I put a question out on social media. If anyone had a story to tell about body image and diet culture in the breast cancer community, she messaged me back. Here's
4: Laura. I'm Laura. I am 27 years old and I live on the South shore of Massachusetts in Bridgewater. I have a two-year-old little girl named Vivian who, she saved my life. Like her coming into the world actually saved my life. She is the reason that I found out that I had breast cancer. I live with my boyfriend who has been my best friend for eight years. And yeah, I have a great relationship with my daughter's dad. So we're this kind of like happy little unique blended family that no one expects. But honestly, as a 27-year-old who is a breast cancer survivor, there's not really much about me that's normal. I found out I had breast cancer in November of 2019 when my daughter was two months old. I had found a lump in October of 2019 when I was breastfeeding her. About a month later, I told my husband at the time, I, I was like, I'm a little, I'm worried about this. Maybe I should go get it checked out. And I went to the doctor and I saw the nurse practitioner and she felt it. And she actually had found a lump in a different spot on my breast. And she said to me, oh, I'm not really super concerned. I'm breastfeeding too. It happens. We'll get you an ultrasound at some point, maybe after the holidays, no rush. And I got out of the shower one night after that appointment and I put my hair up in a bun right in front of the mirror to put on my face mask. And when I lift my arms up, I saw a dimple in my skin and I was like, that's not a clogged milk duct. Something's going on here. So I instantly panicked. I spent the next day on the phone. Just, I need an ultrasound and I need it now. I don't care where I have to go. You need to get me in. Went through that whole back and forth. Like your doctor didn't market a stat. We're really busy with the holidays and said, I don't care. I don't care that my doctor doesn't think it's stat. I need this now. I was late for the ultrasound. I hit traffic. They were running behind. I actually almost walked out of the appointment. because I was like, Laura, you're just being a hypochondriac. Not a big deal. So I'm chatting with the tech and she went quiet. She went from chatting to quiet. And next thing I know, the radiologist is standing in there and he's like, there's there's a mass and we need to get you a mammogram. And I was like, okay, when do I make the appointment? He's no, we're going. The woman who did my mammogram was a breast cancer survivor and she was hugging me. And I just, I broke down. I said, this can't be what's happening. I have a two month old daughter. I I can't have cancer. I I cannot. They scheduled my biopsy for the next day. And I said, please tell me that you really just wanted me to get a biopsy that you put it in as BI-RATS-5 because you just really wanted me to take care of myself. And he's no, honey, I, I'm so sorry. I really, I hope I'm wrong. I really hope I'm wrong. And two days later, the day after Thanksgiving in 2019 was the day that I found out that I had invasive ductal carcinoma. So I went through that. And in June of 2019, I had the bilateral mastectomy. I had wanted to go flat, but they said, you want to feel feminine. You want to do it. And I said, I don't want expanders. I don't want to have to go through that. To me, it's not worth it. I I want one surgery and I want to be done. I want to be there for my daughter. I want to live my life. And so they were like, there's a surgeon. She can do it in one shot. You can get the reconstruction. And I said, okay, all right, fine. A lot of mastectomy reconstruction it is. And they look fine. (laughs) They looked fine. And so they, they didn't feel like mine, but they, they were there and I was okay with them. One of them slipped And I was struggling with an eating disorder already. And so that was so damaging to me to have that appearance. It was very visible. I was just in this place where I felt so defeated and I felt like changes were made to my body that I had absolutely no control over. Feeling like your body is against you when you just are diagnosed with cancer and you're experiencing that. And it's just, for me, it was this really big disconnect and the the implants like felt good to me at first. First, and then I was in the thick of my eating disorder. So I continued to lose weight and they didn't get any smaller, obviously they felt really large again. It felt disproportionate to my body. I just felt, who am I? What is this body that I'm living in? I don't know anymore. So I, I did actually end up having my implants removed in July and I am now a flatty and I respect any decision that a woman makes. For me, going flat freed me and it freed me from the feeling that I had to fit into society's beauty standards because having breasts perpetuated that. It It was like, now I look feminine to other people. And so it was like, okay, so I don't have to try anymore. I just get to exist for me. And that changed as breast cancer patients. We lose so much control over our bodies and we have, it's just, we have to relinquish our power in many ways. And so I think finding ways to empower yourself and own decisions for me made such a difference in how I got through treatment. Doing
1: research for the interview, I was helping to find information about eating disorders that happen during cancer treatment, and I couldn't find anything. I was able to find support for eating disorder community and then obviously the breast cancer community, but
4: there wasn't an intersection between both of them. How are you finding support? So it's definitely an issue, and I ran into the same thing, and it, it puzzled my medical team a little bit as well. Unfortunately, there wasn't Much like many easy options. And so, some of the time that I went into residential treatment for my eating disorder, it meant not going to treatment. Like, not like I was missing my Herceptin immunotherapy. And I did have one clinic that was willing to work with me. And so, they would give me like a pass to go get my infusions. But It was challenging. Like we had to go very high up in the hospital that I was in to get that approval for me to leave. It was also, there's COVID restrictions. So there was quite a few layers to it, but there was nothing for me that was like an easy, okay, this is where you go for support. This is the path that we're going to take. It was having to get bits and pieces from each community. And it felt very hard for me to relate to a lot of the other people who were in in eating disorder treatment with me, because I have this whole other layer that I'm thankful that they don't understand. I'm so thankful and I would rather be alone in that always. But right. it's hard. It it's lonely and it's confusing. The,
1: the more I thought about this last night, there's no way like you're you're the only person that that has suffered from both at the same time. Because as as women, we grow up in a society where we are always judging our bodies and we are always finding issues with it. So I can't imagine, especially people. People who are seeking that control while things are really uncontrollable. Explain to me the process of how you found out that you had an eating disorder or that your medical team found out that you had an eating disorder.
4: My eating disorder has been on and off for about 15 years now. It went through periods of laying dormant and it came up when I had just started chemo and it came back strong. And this round of it was the strongest I had ever experienced. And it started not being a big deal to me because I could keep it quiet. So I had the excuse of chemo. Okay, I just can't eat because of chemo or Oh, I'm sick because of chemo. Oh, that's why the number on the scale is going down. It's because of this. It's because of this. And that only lasted so long before my team's like, this isn't normal, like your tests are okay. Um, And I was going back to my oncologist's office like daily for fluids, because I was restricting that as well. I was fortunate that I had an integrated medical team where my psychiatrist was in contact with my oncologist. So they started putting two and two together. And my psychiatrist, psychiatrist like would show concern and over time it it was like i couldn't really hide it i was suffering and i just broke down and and was like okay i'll let you try to help me but there was still there's there was still a lot for over a year there was like it was like help me but at the same time don't so there were a lot of reservations on my part and made it tricky it does seem that you're really
1: lucky to have your psychiatrist and your oncologist talking together because as we find pretty often is that our different health cares don't talk to to each other. I can only imagine that people who don't have psychiatrists and haven't discovered that they have an eating disorder or have admitted it are going undiagnosed and missed and untreated all the time.
4: Absolutely. I only had that set up because I was part of a study. So it was just really luck of the draw, but I have experienced that disconnect that in and of itself, going through this changes you and it changes you drastically with your, it changes your sex life. It Changes your body image because everything just not working the way that it did. And having those two teams not communicate, I, uh, a lot of people don't have a psychiatrist, maybe not at all, but most situations that is divided. I can say honestly that if I didn't have that support, it probably would have exhausted me trying to connect the two. And it would have been a lot harder for me to let someone help me to having to relay information between just an other person in the mix. So I can really empathize with the people out there who are struggling and don't necessarily have like access right in the palm of their hand to get treatment because it's just, it's another challenge when you're already going through so much.
1: You're right. Do you think that in our cancer community, I, it perpetuates like a diet culture
4: or like a body image issue? Over the course of my treatment, I was very selective with who I would surround myself on social media. I didn't really have access to people in person just because it was the pandemic. So uh-huh. if I saw something being like, oh, drink this juice or only drink this or only eat that, and I would unfollow because I was feeling like I was in such a fragile spot. And the last thing I wanted was another person telling me what I should be doing or putting these pressures of maintaining a certain body or eating certain things when I was going through everything with treatment. So I was selective, but I do think that something I've seen um, and heard is like the expectations of doing certain things, holding your body to a certain standard in a sense of, oh, my mother-in-law had breast cancer and she worked all through chemotherapy. It's okay. That is great for her. And if that's what got her through. Fabulous. I know that no one's journey is the same. So I think giving off this image, especially like during treatment of people doing these things that you don't feel capable of at the time is quite damaging.
1: And it's frustrating because we start comparing ourselves to other people. We do it as mothers. We do it as women. We do it as like wives or partners. We do it in the workplace of where we should be. And it's so frustrating that happens. And it sounds when we talk about it a little ridiculous that we're trying to compare our cancer treatment and how we're reacting to the treatment to other people's story. Like why would we think one is better than the other? But for some reason we do it and it is really damaging. I think there is a lot of sense and good information that you're saying how you would surround yourself.
4: I went off the grid on social media for about six or seven months almost entirely and I had been sharing like almost every of my every detail of treatment both for cancer and my eating disorder up until that point and then I just had to fall off and the reason that I had to do that was because I had to change my mindset. I firmly believe as I mentioned before everyone's journey is different and therefore everyone has the right to share their story but I also have the right to acknowledge what's damaging for me and and choose not to follow and I. I had to reset my headspace and say you don't have to compare yourself like you don't know like their full story they don't know yours like you're doing the best you can and then I, I was able to detach and now I will poke around in it but it really depends on the day yeah so acknowledging where you're at in your head and what you can handle it's okay there that you have that right
1: For some of us who might not be as familiar with eating disorders like how does that start? So I'm sure you didn't start eating one day and then having complete eating disorder
4: where you're just depriving yourself in just one day. That's a great question. My eating disorder first popped up when I was 11 years old, and it started with purging um, like junk foods, what I thought of at the time as bad foods, but I was told by family and the world was bad foods. And that happened on and off until I was 25 and diagnosed with breast cancer. But it would sometimes happened for a few weeks. I did go through a, when I was about 21, I was on a medication that suppressed my appetite. So I, I, that's when I leaned into the restriction part of it for a couple of months, I just was hardly eating and I lost a lot of weight. Eventually it, it just went away on its own. I had never received treatment for it during those times. And then when I got breast cancer, I felt so disappointed in my body specifically because I couldn't breastfeed my daughter anymore. So it was like my body has no use. My body is terrible. It was a sense of control, but also a source of punishment. And it started out with being like, okay, well, I'm just going to skip this meal or I'm just going to have this food and or binge this food because it takes my mind off of being scared about scans or chemo next week or whatever it is. And then it was like a snowball and I was just here I was like not eating. And when I did eat I was purging and it's it was a process, but it felt like it went from from zero to 60 for me.
1: What is your current diagnosis with your
4: cancer and where are you at with treatment for your eating disorder? So I am currently done um, with cancer treatment, except for my tamoxifen. I am now classified as a survivor and I'm grateful. My eating disorder, I am like 120 days purge free. Awesome. I thank you. I had to redo my relationship with food and slowly over time, learn my hunger cues again, my fullness cues, how to push people's opinions aside about what foods are good and what foods are bad, and learn to have my body tell me what it could handle and what it didn't. And that's going to be unique to every person, right? So that was a process and I'll be totally honest, I still struggle with restricting. So I'm technically in recovery, which is amazing, but it's still hard. It's it's not just over. No, that that makes
1: a ton in a sense. And congratulations, by the way, every day that we get through it is nice. You know what I mean? It's a little win for us like that we made it to the next day. What would you say to people who might be following the same path that they're trying to find control or they're having issues with their body image? What would you want the cancer community to know what happens and how to recognize it?
4: The first thing I would want anyone who's experiencing these kind of feelings to know is that they're absolutely not alone, even though I know at the time I felt like I was. It's hard because I think the answer that most people would expect from me coming out on the other side now is tell your treatment team immediately, get intervention, do whatever it takes. And while that is like best thing, that's, that would just, that's like the most ideal thing, but that's like also extremely hard. So take it slow, do whatever like you feel comfortable with. If that's telling a friend, if that's writing about it in your journal, if that's uh, seeking a therapist or a psychiatrist. There's there's so many challenges that come along with having those feelings and then being able to admit that they're there and then getting the help in terms of like the actual process of it. Try Try to do what you can with it every day to to get better and that's going to mean different things for different people
1: if there's a message that i would say that resonates with me after speaking to you and it's about a lot of it it's like intuition about listening to your body even from your story of your diagnosis and i think being intuitive about what our body needs just like with your flat closure you're intuitive about that about your diagnosis you're intuitive about it But even coming around and asking for help and it was up to you and your body to decide that's what you wanted to do. And so I just feel like every good decision so far that I know about you, Lord, that you've made is that you listened to your body eventually. And that's what lets you on a, a healthier path
4: instead of letting the outside noise talk to you. Absolutely. Before my cancer diagnosis, I almost was constantly working against my body in every way. And when I say restricting, I don't just mean in terms of food intake. I mean, like certain kinds of foods, certain kinds, of activities, just truly being myself. I just really was trying to fit in the neat little box and I worked against myself and absolutely healing has for me been all just listening to myself. And that's why I can't say contact a psychiatrist immediately, because even though I had one on board, it wasn't until I was ready to get better that anything actually stuck.
1: You should be very proud of yourself for a number of reasons. And I think especially that that you're wanting to talk about it. I know it's not easy for people in general to talk about their cancer diagnosis. It can be really triggering. And then anything else on top of that, especially when it comes to like body image type stuff, because it's a weird admission, right? There are others like you, and I know you're going to touch them and that there's going to be someone that
4: listens to this podcast. That's going to a light switch is going to go on because of you. With everything, Thing that I've gone through, the mindset that I try to keep is that if sharing my story can help one person, then that's a good enough reason to share it. And it's so important for me to share mine. I can't speak to what anyone else should do ever. But I think that more people being open in our community and honest is just always helpful.
1: Our next guest is Dr. Crystal Zuniga. I came across her Instagram after someone else had shared one of her videos on their stories. I was immediately drawn to her and started following her. What made her different from other nutritionists that I see on social all the time was that she was very thoughtful on the language she used around nutrition and never made me feel bad about myself after giving advice on her post. Here's Dr. Zuniga.
5: My name is Crystal Zuniga. I am born and raised in Arlington, Texas. So I've been a Texas girl, but I went to school in Ohio and Illinois to be a dietitian and then pursue my higher Uh, education in nutrition. And in getting my PhD, I was doing work on dietary strategies for prevention of prostate cancer. And that's really what opened up my interest into the powerful role of nutrition in cancer. And then I was an assistant professor in nutrition for several years doing research, but I was really missing that piece of connecting with the patient. So in my research, I was doing research on nutrition, physical activity, and chemo brain, actually, in breast cancer, in working with the participants in the study, learning a lot more about how they didn't get a lot of education about nutrition during their experience. They had a lot of questions and hearing a lot about the misinformation. And so I learned a lot from my participants and being out in the community. And it really drew me more into wanting to work with this population more. So I, I took a role when the Livestrong Cancer Institute's at uh, UT Austin's Medical School, Dell Medical School. Uh, That opened up in late 2018, but I started there in 2019. And I've been an oncology dietitian with them for the past couple of years. So private practice, as well as working in clinical practice. And so in that clinic, we see many different cancer types.
1: Can you tell us your thoughts about diet culture in the breast cancer community and how you approach nutrition with your patients?
5: Diet culture is a new term kind of being tossed around lately. And I think it is important to bring attention to that term because diet culture isn't about being on a diet. It's more of this system of beliefs in our culture about the way that we look, what we eat, the amount of exercise you do, the type of foods that you're eating and attaching that to some type of moral virtue. So things that are good or bad, equating thinness to health, promoting weight loss and praising weight loss. Like it's always good and healthy, all these different types of diets saying that there's one way to eat. And if you're not eating that way, that's dirty and that's not good. And, And really this good or bad mentality around food and weight and exercise when it is not black and white. And then you've got that attached with the medical aspect of it. And so when someone going through cancer treatment, feeling like a lot of things are out of their control, like weight changes, like what they can eat and the amount of energy they have to exercise when they're in the system of the diet culture beliefs And in our culture, there can be a lot of shame and guilt feeling like they're not measuring up to the culture's beliefs and ideals about weight and
1: health. How do you approach nutrition when it comes to seeing your patients, especially people who have
5: metastatic disease? I try to approach using diet and talking about physical activity too in that terms of empowerment that you can use your nutrition and physical activity as a way to improve quality of life to help you withstand the treatments that are going to prolong life and not necessarily this good or bad like i often get asked in the consult all right tell me what i can't eat it's not that simple how are you feeling what can you eat what are your barriers and what is your financial constraints things like that so i try to approach nutrition in a way that we are tailoring a dietary approach to the individual. And it is not a black and white thing. I think a lot of people feel maybe they want an explanation for why they got cancer. And really, it's biology, unfortunately, it was a mistake made by the body and and can't pinpoint it on one thing. And I've talked about this before too, about the term prevention, talk about cancer prevention strategies. And yes, it's used correctly in the medical way that prevention means reducing the risk. But I don't think a lot of people understand that that what that means. This isn't saying if you do this, you will never get cancer. It means if you do these types of lifestyle behaviors, you will reduce your risk but it is not completely avoidable. So that's what I try to approach in in nutrition. Again, these are things that we can do to help reduce your risk, improve your health, improve quality of life and help you withstand treatments. But this this isn't the cure.
1: Are there any inaccurate assumptions about people who are considered like plus size, curvy or fat when it comes to their diagnosis with breast cancer or metastatic breast cancer?
5: I think a lot of it can, in that blame thing, again, that blame and shame. Yes, there is research that has associated higher BMI with an increased risk, but that is not a cause and effect. Again, we've got to tease apart that risk is not the same thing as cause and effect. Okay, hey? And we also have some research in the metastatic breast cancer. There is actually a study that just came out and there was no association of BMI with prognosis in those with metastatic breast cancer. There's also been some interesting research that they call the obesity paradox that those that have a higher BMI might have better outcomes. Also weight loss, a significant weight loss during treatment is associated with some negative outcomes. And that might often be associated with that individual isn't tolerating the treatment well, but again, that it isn't all negative, although definitely in the culture, it is stigmatized. And one of the dangers is that weight stigma. We see this in healthcare a lot that often they might be diagnosed later because people are uh, blaming their symptoms on their weight and just lose weight or because of that weight stigma, an individual might not want to go to a healthcare provider for a symptom or or side effect because they feel like they're going to get blamed for it and not going to get the care that they need. So there are a lot of dangers about overweight and obesity, but that's related to weight stigma and how they are treated in the healthcare system and in our culture, unfortunately.
1: What are some things that are infuriating to a nutritionist that they might hear?
5: Yeah. I tell people if I knew I'd be the first one shouting, from the rooftops announcing it everywhere that we've got a, a cure for cancer. But I think, again, these bad diets as part of diet culture get big and promoted and think, if it works for this, it can work for this. And it really gets way more attention than it deserves. What's most infuriating, I can't even keep up with all the crazy things I've heard about the cure found in some diet or oil or supplement. And I think that's going around without people having a real understanding of the complexity of cancer and cancer treatment. And no one cancer is the same, even breast cancer, for example, about the different uh, mutations that can happen, even within the same tumor in the same individual, different cells have different mutations. It's why these cancers are so hard to treat. So to think that one diet is going to be the cure just does not make any sense if you understand the biology of cancer.
1: After being off chemo and just being more in cancer treatment, I find that people in the MBC community are struggling with weight gain. Mm-hmm. Because this, what changes, and why is that happening?
5: That is one thing too that people expect that weight loss and are struggling with the weight gain and a weight gain often often feels like out of their control and feeling like, well, I haven't really changed the way that I'm eating or uh, my physical activity. Why am I gaining weight? There's a lot of factors that can contribute to that, especially for a metastatic breast cancer could be steroids are notorious for weight gain. Steroids also contribute to a potential development of insulin resistance. So then the body's pumping out more insulin because the cells aren't responding as well. Hormone therapies. So often entering an early menopause and that can have an impact on muscle quality and metabolism. Although diet might not change, physical activity might change because of fatigue. And also the body tries to conserve energy and might keep you a little more sedentary than usual or your fatigue might keep you from doing a lot of your typical activities of daily living. Sleep quality, stress and potential emotional eating that can come with that. Like really that weight gain is multifactorial. And I think when people struggle with seeing that weight gain, they right away go to the diet. I just need to cut back. I need to eat less. I need to follow this restrictive diet when that weight gain is coming from many contributing factors. You literally just described all my symptoms. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And like said, those on the other end that have lost a lot of weight, they're also navigating unsolicited comments from people about their weight. And again, back to that diet culture where people who are a lot weight and feel uncomfortable in the way that their body looks now, because they feel like now everyone can see that they're sick. People make comments about it and even praise that, look, you've lost all this weight. No, (laughs) it's not necessarily a good thing, right? No. no. And again, that there's on both ends, people struggling with the body image changes. Uh, Their body doesn't look the same. You talk about that. You are trying to approach nutrition and managing symptoms from cancer treatment. Mm -hmm. How how does that work? It goes back to what we're talking about, that there's not one diet for all, because depending on the side effects that someone might be having from treatment, there needs to be some modifications for uh, their diet. So for example, if someone's having a lot of digestive issues, following a high fat, greasy type of keto diet would not go well. Also, a vegan diet might not go well either with so much fiber and someone having a lot of diarrhea. Uh, For example, we might need to take it back on some of those raw veggies. So we've got to have room to be flexible with the diet, depending on uh, the side effects that individuals having. Mouth sores, for example, need to stay away from things that are spicy or acidic or crunchy until those mouth sores resolve, because that's going to worsen. Aggravating their side effects is one thing. And then also changing the approach to maybe how often they're eating, what types of foods they're eating so that they can stay nourished and without worsening side effects so that they can... And stay on course because that's one thing that your oncologist will be monitoring is your tolerance to treatment. So if that diarrhea is getting too severe, they're going to maybe take a pause on your chemo or dose reduce, reduce the severity.
1: What are some of the
5: mistakes people or traps people fall into when they're trying to reclaim their health through food? Mm, I think again, back to that black and white thinking about diet, that there's only one diet that is going to be the best diet. I think falling into these, yes, there's some good support groups. I totally support patients getting the support that they need, but that's often where I found patients have been getting a lot. Crazy information, um, honestly. About a lot of supplements, and, and I think a lot of people don't realize the potential risks of those supplements. What um,
1: would be an example of like a risk of something you're supplementing?
5: Oh, yeah. So there are some uh, supplements that can interfere or are metabolized through a certain enzyme that also medications are metabolized through, so they can compete with each other, and so that can change the amount of active medication in the bloodstream. So in examples like St. John's wort is notorious for for that. Also one that I've been hearing a lot more about lately has been the apricot seeds. For example, mm-hmm. vitamin B17. Well, it's not a vitamin, first of all, <laughs> it just got coined that way. I don't know how, um, but actually that is something that is broken down by the body into cyanide. So yes, our cancer cells would die from cyanide, but so would we if you had cyanide. So those are some things that they're, they look natural, right? Apricot seeds. Right. Is good for you. Yeah, we're not meant to eat the seeds though. And there are dangerous chemicals in plants. Actually, like yeah. some cancer treatments are derived from alkaloids that have been found and discovered in plants. And then we took that dangerous compound and applied it to, to treatments. of cancer. Right, right. Wow. Very carefully studied dose calculated type of way when supplements, you don't know, you, you really don't know. And especially here in the U.S., they don't have to prove that they are safe, effective, or have what they say they have before they're allowed on the market
1: part of your practice is empowering patients. What sort of language and what do you do to patients feel empowered in their bodies and through
5: nutrition? I think one way is to not give that black and white thinking about you need to eat this way. This is what you have to do. That is not empowering. That's dictating. And I think there's a lot of things in their care that many patients feel like they don't have any power over. Yes, you need to do the chemo regimen the way that it was prescribed and take your medications as they were prescribed. So there's a lot of loss of autonomy there. And I want to use diet as a way of what do you enjoy eating? What do you have time to prepare? How would you like the quality of your diet to look like? And then we can work with that together. So in that empowerment piece is I want to know more about what they want from their diet and also accommodate to what potential barriers they might have as well and limitations. And for example, too, when you've got a younger patients who also have families that they're taking care of, I want it to not feel like they have to eat so something totally different than what their family is eating. Right. Learning more about what their goals are, what their barriers are, what their likes and dislikes are. Like we're going to come up with a plan together and, and make that feel like an empowering piece rather than being told what to do. Right. It's weight loss. Your number one goal when you talk to your patient. Never. And honestly, even when a, a provider is saying they need to lose weight, I'd like to learn why, what is this to get to the surgery that they need? Okay. Then then we can work on that. And as long as that's been expressed to the patient, why that needs to happen. I would never say, oh, did you know your BMI is this? You need to lose weight. Absolutely not because health and weight are not that connected as people might think they are. It is. So no, I, I don't, but also I understand that there are some people who want to lose weight and I don't shut down that conversation. I ask questions about why. And I want to again, learn more about their goals and what they think is going to come from that weight loss too.
1: I came across your on your social, you were talking about food anxiety. What is food anxiety and what might cause a person to be anxious about their
5: food? A little bit it can go for a couple of things. One of them is that guilt and shame around foods, like having anxiety about eating foods that they might feel are off limits, like cookies or things that have sugar, right? Because sugar feeds cancer and so anxiety about that or knowing that they're going to be in a situation that's going to have cake at a party and there's anxiety around even being at the event because they're going to be around that type of food and don't feel in control of it. So there's that aspect. And then also I see a lot in treatment about having anxiety about having foods that in the past might have caused some side effects or worsened some side effects of people, even with a smell of something that they remember from the infusion room can make them nauseous. So there is definitely a psychological approach to it. Dr. Zunika, if you have
1: metastatic breast cancer and your oncologist really isn't talking to you about diet, when
5: is it a good time to try to seek a referral? So if you have any questions about diet, that's a good opportunity to get a referral for sure because as you said, often patients are left to navigate that all on their own and you end up on support groups and blogs and it's there's so much misinformation around diet so trying to go to a good source of that information would be, I would recommend. And then but more specifically, if there is unintentional weight loss or having difficulty eating because of side effects, that would definitely warrant seeing a dietician. So you can develop a more tailored approach to your diet to help with perhaps weight gain or holding on to the muscle mass or eating while you're navigating these side effects. So remind people there are experts in this area. You don't have to figure this out on your own. It just seems with so much
1: misinformation out there that it makes sense to consult uh, a dietitian or a nutritionist and have someone on your team of your supportive care team to
5: help that. Yeah. And so cancer is impacting every aspect of someone's life. And so for expecting the patient to figure out who can I talk to you about this issue and this issue, and you've got your maybe 15 minutes with your oncologist. You're talking about the cancer. If you have someone that you have found that would take a referral from your provider, present that information to them so they can do that. That I, I understand too, that's just more burden on, on the patient. And a lot of this underrepresentation of nutrition in oncology care is down to an insurance issue, honestly. A lot of insurers do not cover nutrition counseling, um, especially for uh, oncology. Medicare does not uh, cover that. And there is actually some advocacy going on for the Medical Nutrition Therapy Act, which would expand the diagnoses that Medicare would cover nutrition counseling for, and that actually includes oncology. I've heard
1: a lot of people say this where their oncologist is just eat whatever you can because
5: it's not always going to be days like where you're going to want to eat. I was having a conversation about this too with someone else. I gave a presentation to providers about this, and I said that shuts down the conversation about nutrition. Yes. Like I understand you don't have much time to talk about it. And yes, you just want your patient to stay nourished, but that eat whatever you want, or diet doesn't matter, or just don't lose weight shuts down the conversation about the importance of nutrition. And I'd be like, Oh, if you have some questions about nutrition, we could refer you to a dietitian who could help you like that could open up the conversation about the value of nutrition. That's an opportunity to talk about that. I think there's a time and place for that type of comment, eat whatever you can. I, I I will even say that with patients as Hey, on those bad days, just get something in. We got to get nourishment. We got to get fluid, but on the good days where you're feeling better, here's our opportunity to optimize, to help your body recover. And here's some food choices that you can make that's going to help your body recover faster. And I agree too, then if someone goes online and then finds information about diet and things like, well, my oncologist never told me about that. And can I really trust them to, do they know everything? And, and so it can almost also create some distrust with your provider. If, if yeah. Your nutrition doesn't matter, but you're saying something else. If you were to give advice
1: to someone who is newly diagnosed with MBC and on treatment, what advice would you give for them to stay empowered with their bodies and their, their bodies that are changing?
5: Mm. So if they're newly diagnosed, I and mean, what we just talked about, about that. Nutrition can be something that can help you maintain quality of life. We want to maintain your muscles so you can maintain physical function and, and do what you want to do and withstand treatments. And so that's what we can use nutrition for, to help you feel the best you can and, and try to reduce the severity of side effects. So I want people to approach that nutrition is something that is going to be working in collaboration with their treatment and make them feel empowered that way too. And that also that physical activity piece, I always talk, I know I'm the dietitian, but we can't disregard that physical activity piece and, and feeling stronger because I really want patients to feel like they can get strong during treatment there's research that actually can build muscle during treatment and also the diet, there are so many stressors that are going to happen during treatment already the diagnosis is a crazy stressor but also you still have a family that might be taking care of or a job and the stress that comes with regular life plus treatment, we should not be stressing about diet, yeah. okay? yes diet is important and, but it should not be something that you're stressing about every food choice. That's so refreshing to hear, to be honest. It's nice to hear because it. It, um, it counteracts what our
1: society is saying about it, that we should only be um, focusing on our diet and how we look. I know that you offer like services. Where can people find you and your services?
5: Yeah. So please follow me on Instagram at yeah. Cancer Nutrition HQ. I don't have a website currently, but that's where I communicate information. and You can reach out to me directly in, in DMs. And I do offer occasionally presentations about different nutrition uh, topics. And I love learning more about what people's concerns are, like really what has elevated my practice has been the patients and learning from them. So I always appreciate feedback about that and their experiences because that just helps better inform my practice.
1: Not only are you here to give knowledge and your expertise, but I just feel like people should just be following you if they want to feel better about themselves. <laughs> Next guest is a social media influencer. Her name is Mariah Crenshaw. Like many young people diagnosed with breast cancer, I use social media to find connections and support. And I came across Mariah. If you've seen Mariah's Instagram, you won't be surprised that she's a fave amongst the breast cancer community. Breast cancer aside, Mariah has style. She's beautiful and she's smart. Mariah is 29 years old, currently living in Louisville, Kentucky, and she's a criminal justice specialist at a local government entity. She has a master's degree in international crimes, conflict, and criminology. Mariah is also a model who uses her influence to emphasize the importance of loving your body at every stage. Check her out. You won't regret it. I'm obviously a real stand for Mariah, so you won't be surprised to know that I was very excited to have her on the podcast for this episode. Here's Mariah. Priya.
6: So I was diagnosed in May of 2018 when I was living abroad in the Netherlands, getting my master's degree. I was getting my master's in international crimes, conflict, and criminology. And we were towards the end of the year. We were working on my thesis and I was just like going and traveling different countries and everything like that. So when I thought that there was something wrong with me, I put it to the back of my head because I'm like, you're in Europe. That's a once in a lifetime opportunity. Focus on that. Enjoy yourself. So it was a good experience though, overall. But yeah, that's what I was doing over there. I was just getting my degree. I felt a lump in March and pushed it off a little bit because I was like, I have finals to do. So I can't think about things like that. In May, I went to a general practitioner there and they said, we might, it might be a water cyst because of your age. At the time I was only 25, just turned 26 actually. And they were like, we'll get you an appointment anyways. I had an ultrasound immediately after that. They said, we need to get you in the name room. So they took me to the mammogram room. And when they were done with that, they are like, okay, we need you to come in tomorrow. As soon as we open up, and you will know within an hour after we do a biopsy if it's cancer or not and I said okay cool so I came back the next day she told me everything she said I was malignant and I said okay I got a lumpectomy when I was done in, when I was there in the Netherlands and then they told me that chemo was strongly recommended so I said I have to come back to the states I can't just I can do surgeries alone but I didn't know what chemo was going to be like so I said okay let me move back to the states to finish that then I had a double mastectomy with expanders. And then a couple months later I had my implants put in and then I finished my thesis, I graduated still, and it was stage two. Yeah, that's pretty much it.
1: And I hope you don't mind me saying this, but you and I were curvier people, we're plus right. size. I don't mind using the word fat, like I embrace I the, the fat term because you're so open on social media. If there is any point a time that people made assumptions about why you got cancer, maybe a type of those assumptions that had to do with like your weight or anything like that. Or do you feel blamed sometimes from the outside?
6: No one ever opened said to me people that I know that I might have
1: got cancer
6: from being fat doctors have an interesting way of saying things sometimes and that is insinuates things which is so interesting because I had to remind myself over and over again anybody can get cancer so placing the blame solely on my BMI I call BS but then obviously because of the diet culture and the societies that we live in we're always going to have that kind of Feeling like maybe if I weighed 50 pounds less, I wouldn't have got cancer. Or maybe if I weighed 50 pounds less, it wouldn't have came so early. Like things of that nature. And so I internalized what I thought society would say to me because of the way our society already is about fat people. My So once I found out about my diagnosis and I put it out there, the first thing I said is like, I don't want people to pity me. I just want people to know, hey, you can be any age because a lot of people didn't realize you see the pictures on TV or the commercials. It's all these middle-aged white women. So the fact that I am Black and I'm in my 20s getting this. Disregard the size of my body. Look at who I am and what I represent at
1: that point. Absolutely. Talk to me more about that. Where did you find resources and support when you got diagnosed with breast cancer?
6: So when I got diagnosed, I did what I think a lot of people do, they go to Facebook and find every Facebook group that's related to breast cancer and yep. join them all join every single one of them when I joined them all and realized that not many people looked like me or put all their faith in a religion to get them through it I was like what am I gonna do I at that point would talk to people try to find people my age to talk to but then at one point there'd be a wall but you're relying on the faith at this point I don't do that so there's a disconnect in our conversations about point. So for a while, I felt, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do. So I finally found For the Breast of Us and I found another group on Facebook that I really connect with. And I've just been going from there because it's hard to find people like I know in a perfect world, all the boxes would be checked. They're like this, they do this, they like that, they do with this. That would be awesome. So I have to like know what's the most important to me. So being a person of color, because my experience is going to be different. I gravitated to for the breast bus.
1: Your account is amazing. My assumptions about you here they go is that you're comfortable with your body that you're confident that first of all you have style the fits are unreal and that you there's a playfulness about you i can't be the only person that's being impacted about your confidence and and what you're showing out there were you this involved in social before breast cancer or was it until after breast cancer
6: i have always been involved in social media before breast cancer i was traveling abroad doing different experiences, trying new food, new drinks, posting it, going to different cities in the States, everything like that. I think what changed when I got diagnosed with breast cancer is my transparency on real issues that are going on with me beforehand. I'd be like, Hey, I got this steak at place, or you should go here too. Or look, I'm looking at this monument in this different city. Now it's today sucks. I don't feel like myself in this body. And I can use social media, which can be a good thing and a bad thing, as like a diary to express my emotions and then the affirmations I get back. I feel like, wow, I'm not alone in my thought process about this journey. And I told myself, once I got diagnosed that I didn't want to keep it a secret and I didn't because it's a learning opportunity for everyone. So me keeping it to myself would have made me feel selfish. I know people do it for different reasons and that's their business. I'm no judgment at all. But for me, I felt like I had to because it's now a part of me. And in order for me to be my most sincere self, I needed to express it and show it. So it's just breast cancer has amplified my presence on social media because now I I feel like I have a duty to show my experience.
1: And that's, the at least from why I can tell that's the part of advocacy I see that you're doing is that you're representing a person who's normally not represented in this breast cancer community. And who knows, someone who's just recently diagnosed that wants to find out what implants look like on a Black woman or a plus size black woman. Me personally, as a plus size woman, I already
6: hear in society that I need to lose weight to look better and to be healthier and to do all these things. It's amplified once you get cancer because people are like, you probably got it because you're like 50 pounds, 70 pounds overweight. And it's, that's not how that is. And it's just, very frustrating. And even when I got cancer and I was going through chemo, I was always trying to fight. Well, don't gain too much weight or kind of stay where you are. You don't want to have to worry about this later when you're no longer on chemo and things like that. So it's just what society
1: feeds us every day about our diagnosis and our weight. How triggering like the medical establishment is to those societal norms. Honestly, I have stage four cancer. Getting weighed at the doctor's office fucks me up every time I go in there I have more anxiety about what I ate that week what I ate that month and how much I exercised, or if I didn't going on that scale when I see my doctor every month and my brain is saying why does that matter it shouldn't matter any of those have but I can't help but feel that way and ashamed every time mm-hmm. I step on that scale mm-hmm. and you brought
6: up a point that I realized so every month I go and I go get my Lupron shot that's all they're doing so why do you need to weigh me every month and then ask me do I want to know my weight and I'm like I saw it even though it's in kilograms right there and you converted it I still know what that is so if they make it a point and I don't know if they're programmed to do it that way but they'll be typing on their computer and putting your stuff in and they'll turn around do you want to know your weight I said I can see it check my blood pressure all day long that makes sense for where we're here check my oxygen check my heart rate check everything but every time like, keep it to yourself almost unless I ask. But they put you on that tall scale with the digital numbers right then and there. Frustrating
1: because that's not why I came today. Do you feel like the cancer community represents? sizes accurately with people who have cancer. It's always
6: funny to me when you see those commercials and people are outside gardening after they had chemo the day before, because I was grateful and thankful enough that I didn't have to work through chemo because I was living with my mom at the time, but I didn't want to do anything like that. It doesn't show the in-between of us. There are some days that we are incredibly active, like chemo, didn't hurt us that bad that week. Like it didn't kick us in the ass that hard. And there are some where we're so drained. You're lucky if we get up to go to the bathroom to take a shower that day and everything like that. And that's not what on the TV. That's not what's in your doctor's office. And I know they do it to make us hopeful for our future and we can get through this, but it's not that accurate. And it's okay to want to lay around when you're sick. It's okay. If you decide that you want to run a marathon during chemo, do it, that's your business. But don't feel like you're obligated to prove a point. If your body tells you to rest, if it tells you to, hey, go out and run this, do it, listen to your body. A lot of us get diagnosed with this because we listen to our bodies in the first place. If I didn't notice any changes in my body, I would have never known that I had
1: it. So well said. And especially the listening to your body. If there is one lesson that cancer has given me, it was to listen to my body. Do you feel like you're maybe setting a new presence or an example of what people with cancer look like today? that's a possibility. I don't sit there
6: and think about it like that often, but now that you brought it up, I can definitely see it. Cancer has taught me many things. One thing that it's definitely taught me is I need to live my life. Because it can be gone tomorrow. If exercising is what I enjoy doing, then I'm going to do it. If being on this lifestyle diet change where it's restrictive, if that's what works for them, that's fine. But that's not me. I want to go hiking if I want to. And fat people eat salads and do things of this like, they, we do it. It's just our bodies don't look like the IG quote-unquote models. Some of us are just trying to cope with our everyday lives on top of having a cancer diagnosis. That Unless that's already the way I want to put all my focus, I'm not going to stress about it. If the if the healthcare system wants those people to be the poster child of cancer and recovery, that's fine. Except for it's not because that's not everybody. You can be so many different ways with cancer and it's okay. You don't need to starve yourself. You don't need to work out yourself to exhaustion. You have to have a happy balance in everything you do. So at one point you like, because if these poster people of healthcare, if you look at them, you almost feel guilty for what you're, doing with yourself why am I not running 5ks why did I eat junk food today or why did I do this because you wanted to it becomes a problem when you do it all the time however your body needs a break too sometimes so it's just I like that I can be the new person of representing of this community because I just want to show that it's normal to just go
1: through life still and more importantly it's of what you're able and what you want to do. Mm -hmm. And I think people forget to realize that sometimes, and especially like in the metastatic world, there are so many of us dealing with where our cancers metastasize that let us be physical. I, I have like, significant metastases on my spine and they have fractures and stuff. So it makes it really hard. I can't do anything with like high impact. So it's, it's not like I can go do CrossFit because that's going to be super high impact or go backpacking, which I would love to do, but I can't do that. Cause I can't carry that much weight on my back. Then I just think like, I'm so glad that I put weight on and that my body could be healthy and strong enough to fight this disease, fight the treatments, and whatever it is, because it seems more dangerous to be on the other side of being underweight than it does to be overweight. And doctors don't emphasize that with you sometimes. So I try to find ways to empower and give grace to my body for what it's done, it's been through and being plus size of lucky that it has been plus size during those times. I don't know of if course. there is a stage in your recovery where you just felt like, hell yeah, body, like you got it going on. You did what was right for me. And just, it wasn't until my my diagnosis of like basically saying that I'm going to die of breast cancer, my metastatic diagnosis that I didn't find true appreciation for, each roll, each fold, each pound that's on my
6: body. Over the course of time, I started to realize, yeah, you can say your body gave you this and betrayed you. However, you're still alive because of this body. You survived your chemo because of this body. When you were super sick and couldn't eat for a couple weeks, you're still here because of that body. Because although that body's fat, that body still works. And it's going to do what it can for you. And that's when I realized, why am I so concerned about this? this number why am I so concerned about a size of a pants or anything like that when this body wakes me up every day I can't hate it too much because it gets me through every day and that's when I realize, wow being in love with me and my body is obviously a journey that's one that I'll think I will call a journey except for that I won't call a breast cancer journey because I don't like that but it is the journey that I like because it's loving myself through all stages and accepting if I don't like something about me now and I want to change it, I can do that. However, I'm not going to punish myself for who I am now. And cancer taught me that.
1: Wow, that that resonates with me so much you seem really comfortable about showing your scars and showing your body in a way that empowers others. So tell me about being a plus size model.
6: In the last year or so, I've seen myself more of a model. I worked with Tord on their campaign for their love collection for June for Pride Month. I've also been doing a lot of boudoir shoots. And at first I was hesitant because I didn't want to be classified solely as the fat girl who has so much confidence she wants to show her body. And I internalized that a lot because I was like, I don't want them to be like that. But then I realized, hey, I can show people that it's okay to have scars. Like, Physical scars like from my surgeries. It's okay to have stretch marks. It's okay to have cellulite. It's okay to have blemishes. It's okay because guess what? It's our body and it's working for us. So I tend to gravitate towards boudoir sessions and I think everyone should do them when they're comfortable. Don't rush it because I feel it's more of a thing you have to accept within yourself first before you go onto camera, because otherwise it will show that you're not able. And I would love to get into editorial work where someone's, wow, this is beautiful. Oh, she just happens to be fat. Like I want, so it's a back and forth thing. I want to embrace my fatness, my curves, and I want people to see that they can too. But I don't want them to think that's the only thing I am, which is what I was like with my breast cancer thing Uh I was like I don't want people to think oh that's the woman with the breast cancer all the time because guess what I have other things in life that I do so it's hard to be breast cancer diagnosis woman that positive woman sometimes because people don't think that you can be multifaceted and represent so many things everybody just wants to put you in one category when in reality we all fit in so many categories you're not gonna love your body at all times I don't want to give this false narrative that I love my body every day because I don't. And that is the internalized societal pressures. And I want people to know that it's more so loving your body throughout the whole process, no matter what stage you're in of anything in life, loving your body and accepting it and doing good to it, which could be whatever you want that to be.
1: No, that's so well put. Not all relationships are perfect. You have your goods and your baddies, but at the end, do you love that relationship? You're in. And that's the same when it comes to your bodies. Do you love the relationship with your body at the end of the day?
0: This podcast is produced by me, Lisa Laudico, and this episode was led, edited, and designed by our extraordinary producer and co host, Natalia Green. In addition, we were joined and assisted by pod team members, Dar Finkelstein and Ellen Landsberger. Original music from Connor Kinsley. Our executive producer is Christine Benjamin, Senior Director of Patient Services and Education at Share Cancer Support. You can find more episodes of RNBC Life wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe to our news blast rate and review us and look for a new episode every second Wednesday and for the Road to a Cure series every Monday until the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. Check out our blog and full episode notes on our website at RNBCLife.org. We'd love to hear from you.